The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Worshiping God through the hearing of His Word, or text this afternoon, or this morning, I should say, getting ahead of myself. It's afternoon somewhere in the world. It's 1 Corinthians 10:16. so I invite you to turn in your Bibles there to 1 Corinthians 10:16. The reason this is our text is because we're going through this mini-series, even though I know to some of you it doesn't seem mini. When is this going to be over? It'll be over soon. This mini-series on uh, what is acceptable worship. Basically, it's just this extended exposition of Hebrews 12.28, where we're called to offer up to God not only worship, but worship that is acceptable. What is that? And that's what we've been looking at, and now we've come to the section where we're talking about the sacraments or ordinances, they've been called. The past couple of Lord's Days, we have talked about baptism. Today, we are talking about the Lord's Supper. Text is 1 Corinthians 10.16, one verse that's now hear God speak to us through His holy, enduring, and inspired Word. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ. That concludes the reading of God's Word. May God now be pleased to add His blessing to it. Well, you've probably all heard at one point the Lord's Supper called a communion. And the reason why it's called a communion is because it's based on this verse right here. Now, the ESV translates it as participation, but other translations say communion, and that's actually a really good translation of the Greek because that's what it means, communion. The Greek word is koinonia, and can be translated as fellowship, this close relationship, this, this participation, a sharing in, or communion. Uh, this word is used in 1 Corinthians 1.9 where Paul says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's also used in 2 Corinthians 13.14 which says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So in all of this, in, in, in these words, this word that's used in these verses, we see that it's used in reference to our relationship with God, which is not a superficial relationship. It is a close, close and strong bond. It's also used as marriage, as you would, no surprise to you, 1 Corinthians 6 uses it in that sense. And that really, 1 Corinthians 6, does help to provide some helpful background to this usage in 1 Corinthians 10. So to say that the Lord's Supper is a koinonia, a communion with the body and blood of Christ, that Paul would choose that word. It's not to suggest a casual, loose, uh, sure participation in, but rather a very strong statement of this intimate and close bond that we have that occurs the Lord's Supper. Now what I want you to notice specifically is Paul says that we have communion with what we have communion with. Look, look again at 1 Corinthians 6, at 10.16. As the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of 
Christ. So specifically, what we are communing with in the supper is the body and blood of Christ. Paul does not simply say Jesus or Christ, which he very often says in Scripture. Rather, here Paul is much more specific, and he's uniquely specific. He doesn't say this anywhere else. He says it is a participation, a communion with the body and blood of Christ in the supper. That's a very difficult statement. Pay close attention to the text and we see what it's saying. What does it mean though? And this is why during the period of the Reformation, more ink was spilled over the Lord's Supper than over the doctrine of justification. That is, more writing, more debate happened pertaining to the Lord's Supper than any other subject during the time of the Reformation because of what this says here. The Reformers didn't just want to gloss over it. They wanted to deal with the Word of God, what it's presenting and they wanted to be specific. They wanted to be good students. They wanted to pay attention to every word. And they see what it's saying here. It's a participation in the body, blood of Christ. And they didn't want to ignore it because there's some difficulty attending it. Now there are two errors on either side of the spectrum. The first error that occurred during the time of the Reformation was by a man named Holdrick Swingley. He was a Swiss reformer. He's a contemporary of Martin Luther. And he, or his followers, sometimes it's hard to wade through what exactly happened at points in history, but at least his followers denied that there was any real participation or that, that Christ's presence was not in the supper, that Christ was not present when we partake in the supper. It's just about us remembering Christ. It's all about our action. We're the only ones doing something, not God, not Christ. We're the only ones present, remembering someone who's long since passed. And if you've uh, grown up in any sort of non-denominational or evangelical uh, church, this is probably the view that you had. Now, the opposite view is what the Roman Catholics taught. Uh, where they took this to mean the very substance of the bread and wine literally becomes the body and blood of Christ. Now they call this transubstantiation. The substance is, is transferred into something else, transformed into something else. Through the operations of a priest, you may, some of you who grew up Roman Catholic, some of you uh, who are familiar with it, Know that the, the priest holds it up and says this, this prayer and some bells are ringing over here, if I remember correctly. And what happens is, in their mind, this is literally becoming the body and blood of Christ. Through the secret operation of the priest, he is transubstantiating the elements. Now the outward appearances remain the same, they say. But the substance has really changed. And that reminds me of... Uh, man that was uh, grilling some burgers. He was a Roman Catholic man. He was grilling some burgers on Good Friday. As you know, during uh, season, Lent, they can't eat meat on Fridays unless it's, of course, St. Patrick's Day. But outside of that, you can't do that. 
And he was grilling burgers, though. And so another Roman Catholic guy came up to him and said, what are you doing grilling these burgers? And he says, they're not burgers. They've been transubstantiated. I thought that was pretty good. But that's what they think with regards to the supper. Now, the Reformers did agree with Rome that the body and blood of Christ was in some way present in the Lord's Supper because of what this text says here. Uh, the disagreement was not that Christ's body and blood is present, but rather how. That was the question. How? Reformers rejected both Zwingli's memorialist only view and Rome's transubstantiation view, but they taught that Christ's body and blood can still be truly present without being physically or literally present. There's another way for Christ's body to be present other than literally or physically. And this is stated in our Confession of Faith in chapter 30, paragraph 7, which says, Worthy receivers outwardly partaken of the visible elements in this ordinance do also inwardly, by faith, okay, so that's how, inwardly by faith, really and truly, yet not carnally, that is physically, or corporally, that is literally eating his literal body, but spiritually feed, receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. And this is word for word with the Westminster Confession of Faith, except they use sacraments of ordinance. So our Reformed faith teaches that Christ's body and blood is truly present in the supper so as to not reject the plain reading of Scripture, but how Christ's body and blood are present is not physically or literally, but spiritually. That is by the Holy Spirit. That's what they mean by spiritually. John Calvin said, I say that although Christ is absent from the earth in respect of the flesh, yet in the supper we truly feed on his body and blood that owing to the secret agency of the Spirit, we enjoy the presence of both. I say that distance of place is no obstacle to prevent the flesh, which was once crucified, from being given to us as food. Now actually, this should not be that foreign to us, and here's why. I have said, and I'm sure some of you have said, uh, after uh, a, a sermon, not necessarily in this church, but pretend you're in another church, you say, wow, what a feast. I was well fed. I, I love uh, going and visiting uh, other churches and sitting under the preaching of the word, uh, getting a break uh, on the Lord's Day, but also being, being what I say, fed. We, we use that terminology, fed. And what we're not talking about is I'm like eating some snacks while the preacher's preaching, but rather my soul's being fed. And that's what this is referring to. It's not soul for the stomach, but soul for the food. And that's what's happening uh, when the preaching of the word goes forth. You know, I was reading this uh, at a doctor's office, and there was this little book book but called "Chicken Noodle Soup for the Soul." Have you seen that? You heard of these? And uh, the, well, how is it chicken noodle soup? I mean, it doesn't smell like it, doesn't taste like it. Well, what they're 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 saying is that it's feeding you somehow. 
It's feeding you with stories. It's bringing a sense of encouragement and motivation and strength through these stories. It's feeding not your stomach, but your soul. Well, in the, the preaching of the Word, we are being fed soul food. And that soul food is not this little stories here and there, but the soul food is Christ. Soul food is Christ and Him crucified. It's the Gospel. And the same is true not only with the verbal word, but with the visible word. Because the visible word, the Lord's Supper, the body represented in the bread, the blood of Christ represented in the cup, is given for us. And it's not just, hey, remember what happened, but it's actually feeding our souls spiritually. Because these elements represent Christ. They don't literally become Christ, but they represent the body and blood of Christ. And as we saw last week, signs are so powerful that they actually do something. They actually bring some sort of effect. And what they do is they feed us on Christ crucified. He, His body was broken for you and given for you, and you are a participant in it. And so we are being fed Christ and Him crucified through this symbol. And this is what makes these symbols different than any other bread we eat or wine that we drink. And we need to understand that there are spiritual realities present in a sacrificial meal. We need to consider the context of 1 Corinthians 10 in which Paul made this statement. The context is Paul calling the Corinthians to flee from idolatry, which goes all the way back to chapter 8. The specific acts of idolatry that the Corinthians were participating in, though, was not that they had this shrine set up and they were bowing down to it, or they had this idol in their living room, the particular idolatry that the Corinthians were participating in is a sacrificial meal at a pagan worship service. This was a big thing in the first century and in Corinth. Corinth was this melting pot of all sorts of religions. And one of the specific ways that the people of that time committed idolatry was by participating in a communion meal with their false gods. They would sacrifice meat to idols, and then they would eat it. That was an act of worship, not only with the Israelites, saw that in Leviticus, but also with the pagans. This is part and parcel of worship, and that's why we need to even view the Lord's Supper as that way. Now, the Corinthians thought that they could go to these pagan meals uh, without any effects. And you can imagine uh, back in that day, hey, you know, inflation's really high. You know, we got, we, got a new, we got a new leader, a new president, so inflation went all the way up. And meat's really, meat costs a lot. And, you know, I got this free meal. So, you know what? I'm not going to really participate. I'm just going to go to this pagan worship service, not really mean it, and I'm just going to eat the free meat. Right? It's a free meal. Or... You know what? My unbelieving friend invited me. I don't want to try to witness to him. I really don't want to make him, you know, upset. I don't want to have a wedge between us. I don't want to offend him. So I'm just going to go ahead and go, but not really mean it. Who knows what the reason is? In any case, they were going. They were thinking that it wasn't that big of a deal. This is what Paul is addressing in the context of 1 Corinthians 10. He says you cannot go to a pagan religious meal. And then to the Lord's 
table for worship and think, no big deal, that God doesn't care. And Paul begins to prove his point in chapter 10 by revisiting what the Israelites did. He said that the Israelites had these great privileges. They ate spiritual food, bread that came down from heaven. They drank a spiritual drink, water from the rock. And what was that? Well, Paul says the rock was Christ. They were feeding on Christ. But what else did they do? What else they did is that, as Paul reminds them, they had a pagan worship meal. They had a pagan worship service. They made that golden calf. They rose up to, to uh, they, they, they ate and drank and then rose up to play. They're eating and drinking. That's part of worship, identifying with the sacrifice, identifying with the idol. So they ate both from Christ and the idol. And Paul says, Corinthians, look at what happened to them. God was not pleased with them. And that is a warning for them. And so Paul concludes that uh, the Paul's conclusion to this is in 1 Corinthians 10:14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Then Paul continues to support his point by introducing another argument in verses 15 through 16, where we come to our verse. Verse 16. It says in verse 15, judge for yourselves to see if what I'm saying is accurate. Then verse 16, is not our eating and drinking and worship, the Lord's Supper, a koinonia, a communion with the body and blood of Christ? And he asks this rhetorically. Notice he doesn't try to prove the point. He doesn't say, let me prove that it actually is a communion with the body and blood of Christ. He, he assumes that's already established and, and true. And the point Paul is seeking to prove from this is that if the meal we have in our worship service is a true communion with the body and blood of Christ, then that is the case with the pagan worship meal. You cannot just go there and think that all is okay. Paul is saying to these Corinthians, our worship meal, the Lord's Supper, is a communion with the body and blood of Christ. And you know this. I don't need to prove that to you. You know how a worship meal works. So if you know that there is more going on in a worship meal than mere eating and drinking, but an actual communion with the sacrifice, then why do you act as if your participation in a pagan worship meal is no big deal? The conclusion Paul wants them to draw is that in the worship meal that they are doing, they are actually having communion. And in the pagan worship meal, they're actually having communion with idols. And this is why Paul says in verse 19, what, what do I imply? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? You see, if they're following Paul's logic, they're saying, well, wait a minute. If it's true that we are actually uh, having communion, are you saying that idols actually exist? And that's why Paul uh, has to say, no, of course idols don't exist. And then the next logical question is, well, then Paul, what are you implying? With whom are we communing then that you, that makes you so worried. Verse 20, No, I imply that with what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants, that same word, with demons. You see Paul's argument here. If it's true that you are communing with the body and blood of Christ in the worship service, 
in the Lord's Supper, then you are certainly communing at a pagan worship meal, eating meat. Paul's whole argument falls apart. If you, we, or, there is an actual communion with the body and blood of Christ. And we just don't think this way today. I, I think we don't think there's actual spiritual communion in a worship meal because notice that this, this communion with demons is not by praying to them or speaking to them, but eating the meat sacrificed to idols. And he says you are communing by virtue of that. And the reason I, I think we just don't think that way is because we're just not familiar with, with these ancient Near Eastern practices, but we should actually, it should ring a bell to us, thinking about passages such as Exodus 24. Remember the establishment of the Old Covenant. Moses uh, said, this is the blood of the covenant. And then the leaders had a meal, a worship meal with the, in the presence of God. They saw the glory of God. Well, the same thing happened with the New Covenant. In the presence of that same Lord who is now incarnate. He says the same words as Moses. This is the blood of the covenant. And they have a meal there with him at that last Passover and last supper. Now becoming the Lord's Supper. And even though Jesus has ascended to heaven, yet he still communes with his people when they observe the supper. This is because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.16, years later, after Jesus had ascended, that the supper is, present tense, a communion with the body and blood of Christ. Christ is present here with us. Not in the elements themselves. Not confined to the elements. As if it's literally His, his body and blood. But rather what they represent. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ is dining with us, is with us. We are feeding on Him for our spiritual benefit as if He was physically present. He is truly present, although He is bodily absent. And how this is, to said, is by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is similar to how we are said to have been crucified with Christ, buried with Him, and raised with Him, and seated with Him in the heavenlies. When was Christ crucified? About 2,000 years ago, right? You who believe were crucified with Him. How can that be? Were you even alive then? Were you around then? Well, it's by virtue of the power of the Holy Spirit. And what happens in this being crucified with Christ is that the Holy Spirit takes His work, applies it to us, so that we die to our old self and we become new. And hence we're buried with Christ and we are raised with Christ. And Ephesians 2 says that right now, it's present tense, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. How can that be when we're bodily here, but can be said to be in heaven seated with Christ? And that's because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And this same Spirit presents Christ to us in this worship meal. And this is this gets communicated to us in a similar way that the sign of words on the page from Scripture and the visible word of baptism communicates spiritual realities to us that affect change in us. It is through this sign that we are assured 
of forgiveness of sins. That we are assured that we are true participants of Christ's body and blood. And how we participate in Christ's body and blood for our benefit is that His death in our place saves us from our sin. And God uses signs of bread and wine that are given to us that we digest to communicate to us that we are partakers of what Christ has done for us. And this assures us of the forgiveness we have and brings actual spiritual strength from Christ and Him crucified, from His work done so long ago for us. We who believe spiritually commune with Him and are spiritually nourished on Christ's body and blood, which gives us spiritual strength. You, you understand, as, as He says in John 6, you need to eat My flesh and drink my blood. He's not talking about literally, here, here's a chunk of my flesh and you know, digest it physically. He's talking about spiritually. Like You need to trust in what I've done in giving my body up for you and giving myself up for you on the cross. And that is how you are saved. And then as we continue to observe this supper week after week, we again receive the benefit that comes from His Crucifixion. Not that we are forgiven again. Not that our objective standard before God changes, that we go from guilty to, to justified again, but rather it's spiritual nourishment for our soul. It affects change in us. It, it causes us subjectively to again be assured of our objective reality that we are forgiven. And in that sense, it cleanses our conscience. It assures us. It builds us up in the faith. And it's an anticipation of the Lord's coming and that one day our faith will become sight when we are seated at His table. And this is why when we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim His death in the picture of Christ crucified until He comes, anticipating His coming. So because Christ is present with us every first day of the week, we partake in the supper. And this is how we are blessed and nourished. It is a means of grace to build us up in the faith, to confirm God's love to us and the forgiveness that we have in Him in really a tangible way to taste and see that the Lord is good. With that, let's go now into our time, the Lord's Supper. As I said, uh, this is for those of you who have trusted in Christ. Uh, this is not a reward for the strong, but it's a means of grace for the weak. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.